Good morning. We are, this morning, during the Sunday School Hour, we're going to do another lesson in the series on God Is, which is lessons loosely based on Mark Jones's book, God Is, and this morning we're going to be covering the topic of God is Anthropomorphic. And uh, I think for the sake of consistency, Mark Jones titled the chapter that way, because every chapter is titled God Is and the Attribute. But really, what we're talking about is not uh, God's essence, but rather how God communicates, what type of a language God uses to communicate to creatures, specifically to communicate to human beings. And just as an intro, this this area of theology or this topic of discussing anthropomorphic language is something that we're going to see as links a lot of the attributes that we've discussed. We've said from the beginning that God is not just some composition where if we take away his love and take away his blessedness, we are somehow disassembling God, but God has one essence. But we take different Sundays to, to, take, to talk about these different attributes because, uh, simply put, that's, that's what, what we can handle. <laughs> that's how God has communicated himself to us in, in ways that we can understand. Uh, this attribute also is, is something that if it stands or falls, really so do the other attributes of the Lord that we discuss when we understand this language. Um, there sometimes are sections of Scripture that calls us to ask the question why in our heads that seem to be a contradiction to another attribute that we confess to be true or to another verse that said something seemingly otherwise. Uh, but anthropomorphic language helps us to reconcile those things as Christians. So before we get started, we'll open with prayer, and I will begin to try to explain this word that we don't use a lot, uh, that my own wife said, what is that, this morning? Uh, so maybe that same question is out there for everyone else, and it, it really is for most of us. We don't use this word a lot. We don't use this word like we use mercy or love or being blessed um, or anger or any of the other attributes that we've talked about. This is, a, this is a long word. This can be a tongue twister. But the good news is I think I've structured the lesson in a way where we'll have a simpler word that we can say once we learn about uh, anthropomorphism. So let's uh, start with prayer. Father, we are thankful for another lovely spring morning. Uh, and we come in a special way today because we set this day aside as the Lord's Day, a day which we confess you've commanded of us uh, through your fourth commandment, to remember this day and to keep it holy. And so we gather today, Lord, asking you and acknowledging that we need you. We need you this morning as we gather. We need, to, we need your, the help of your spirit to learn and understand and to have our minds drawn towards worshiping you in our former service, which comes later. But Lord, now draw our minds to uh, the attributes of who you are. We come from a week of work, of dealing with family, of dealing with friends, of dealing with uh, worldly works and worldly pleasures, Lord. But we ask today that you would cause those to, to fade into the background. We focus our minds today on the gospel. Help us to be reflective on our sinful hearts, on where we have wandered, Lord. And we ask for correction today where it is needed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the, the word anthropomorphic, really, when you split it in half, um, you can kind of look at these two words that are written on the board. And if you can't read my handwriting, I'm going to read it. Anthropo, which is man or human being or relating to humankind, and morph, which is form. So when we say God is anthropomorphic, what we are saying is God communicates to us in a way, in a man form, or in a way that human beings can understand in a way that 
we can comprehend. Um, and we need to flesh that out a little bit. Uh, but, but what this is based off of is the sense of God is infinite and we are finite. And how does he communicate to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that doesn't cause our heads to explode, in a way that we can actually relate to God and he relate to us. So it's, it's, even though it's not so beautiful of a word to say and to spell, it's a beautiful concept to talk about. Um, because when we say that God is anthropomorphic, we are saying that for some reason, and we'll talk about the reason later, God has freely chosen to relate to us. He hasn't made us and just left us alone. He hasn't given us, he, he did not give us his word, something that we can read, something that can be preached, something that we can um, digest. He hasn't not given us nature and creation. We can walk outside of this building and immediately we are surrounded by things that communicate attributes of God to us that we can understand and wrap our minds around through our senses. So broadly speaking, all that we can know, which is we acknowledge and confess to be limited anyways, we have a limited knowledge, we have a limited capacity for knowledge, all that we can know about God is communicated to us in ways that human beings can grasp. That's what we mean when we say God is anthropomorphic. And like I said, we're going to talk about a simpler way to convey that, but I want to focus in on this word because in Christian theology, this term is used to describe the language of God to communicate to humans in a way that we can grasp. And the language that God often uses to even ascribe human characteristics to himself. So narrowing that definition a little bit, from the broader definition of literally every way that God communicates to us can be said to be anthropomorphic. But more specifically, sometimes in Scripture we see God give himself human characteristics, like God saying that he has a mouth, or an ear, or an eye. Even the, and here's an example of what I mean by that, even the incommunicable attributes of God, in other words, the attributes of God that we discuss in this class that we don't share in any way. For example, God is immutable. He doesn't change. That's something that human beings, we really don't have a grasp of. That's really something that's incomprehensible to us. But God communicates that to us in his scripture. And how do we know what it means to be immutable? There's a word there that we are quite familiar with as Christians um, that allows us to scratch at this idea that God doesn't change. And it's the opposite of that, right? God is unchangeable, but humans experience change, right? From the moment we're born, our hair changes, sometimes our eye color changes, our height, our weight changes, our mood changes whenever we wake up in the morning and we realize that we're out of coffee. Our mood changes pretty quickly sometimes. Our dress changes. Um, our opinions change. Our emotions change. So we can understand change because that's a human characteristic. And because we can understand that concept, we can still talk about and discuss the fact that what we experience, God doesn't. It's the absence of change. The same thing can be said when we say that God is eternal. So God's eternality, right? He has no beginning. He has no end. You think about that hard for about 30 seconds and your brain starts to hurt, right? But how can we even begin to understand what it means to say God is eternal? There's another common factor there, and what is that? What do we know as human beings that at least lets us talk about God being eternal? Well, if God is eternal, that means he's not limited by what? If God is eternal, what is he not limited by? What are we very much aware of? 
Right. Right. Time. We are confined by time from the moment we were born. Right? When you cook a hot pocket, you stick it in the microwave for two minutes and 30 seconds. That's time. Still burns you like lava. Right. Don't bite it, you know. Our whole life goes around. When, when the school teacher goes into the classroom of fifth graders, the class starts at 7.30, she immediately begins counting down the time that 2.50 comes. Okay? 2.30, sorry. <laughs> so the point is, we can still grasp these incomprehensible aspects of God because he's communicated them to us in ways we can understand. We'll never fully understand God, but this type of language, God has chosen that he would communicate to us in a way that we can grasp, right? The Bible's approachable. Sure, there's some difficult things, but but once we learn to read, we can all pick up the Bible and we can read it and we can understand concepts in it. So continuing on, let's talk about the doctrine. So that's just the intro of, of how we see this language. And I want to break this down further for us. And hopefully what will happen is, is if you were like me, we start off with this word that's just so odd and alien. And hopefully by the end of the lesson we are talking about a word, we are talking about language, we're talking about how God works, and we start to see the beauty of it. Instead of kind of this weird word that we never use, anthropomorphic. Before we dive into the doctrine, I think there's a fundamental scripture that is a good reminder is Isaiah chapter 55 this is an excellent scripture to read and remind yourself of before you discuss any of God's attributes <laughs> but specifically with, with God's anthropomorphic language we start to get a little bit of a sense of why is this even necessary why does God have to communicate to us in a way that we understand why can't he just tell us exactly 100% one to one correlation about who he is Here's the answer. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 8 through verse 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. A lot of times in the Christian life, question why is what comes up when we read a Bible verse, when life circumstances happen, when we read a scripture passage or a section of scripture or we do a devotional, that question why comes up. And sometimes it's a really difficult question to answer. And in the moments when it's the most difficult, this is a verse that's a good reminder. This is a verse that is a sweet truth for Christians. But that's foundational to as we approach God using anthropomorphic language because it kind of gives us a little bit of the answer to the question of why is this type of language used? Why is it necessary or helpful or fruitful for us to discuss this type of language in Scripture? And so we're going to break down a couple of the reasons why, and then like our normal format, we're going to look at how we see this language in Christ. So why is discussing this language helpful? Why is understanding anthropomorphic language beneficial to the layman? It's something that uh, no matter your vocation, no matter your age, it's, it's a benefit for us to understand. One of the reasons why is because this language, as we have already stated, helps us relate and know truths about God. There's no truth that we confess about God that was not delivered to us through God accommodating our understanding, God accommodating the limits of our finite minds. 
So it helps us. So this, I like the way this was worded. This came from the chapter in Mark Jones's book. He's, uh, but it's kind of in Grant's words a little bit. It helps us partially comprehend a being who is incomprehensible. It helps us to partially comprehend a being that is incomprehensible. We can spend our lives studying about God and His Word and never reach the end of the full reality of those truths. So, what are some examples of this anthropomorphic language? I've used the word enough. Give me some examples, Grant. Well, let's think specifically in the Old Testament. Um, Herman Bavink lists a treasure trove of these attributes, these human characteristics that God gives to himself throughout the Old Testament. And he lists every single scripture reference. And I'm talking 20 or 30. I will spare you that, so take my word. If you want the list of the references to what I'm about to list, talk to me after class. I will give you a printout, or I will shoot you an email with a link uh, to where it can be seen on your smartphone or on a computer. But some of the areas, and maybe some of these will come to your mind just from your normal Bible reading in the Old Testament, is a lot of times we see God give himself physical human characteristics in his language. We'll read something in the Psalms, for example, that might say that God has eyes, or God has eyelids, or God has nostrils, or God has a mouth, or God has a tongue, or God has feet. But Scripture interprets Scripture, and we also know that, that, that there are other passages of Scripture that tell us how the kids' catechism nicely summarizes when we ask the kids, what is God? And the answer for that is, God is a spirit, and he does not have a body like men. How do we reconcile that? Other times in Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, we will get to the New, we see God ascribing himself or these human emotions. And immediately, that should probably send off a couple of signals because we already had the lesson on God is impassable, right? He doesn't have human passions in the way that we do. He doesn't experience change. But some of those emotions you read about in the Old Testament are God being grieved, God regretting, God having jealousy, God having anger. But like we said, we know that God doesn't have passions like men. We know that God doesn't have a body like men. So how do we reconcile this? When we read the verses in Scripture that seem to attribute, especially in the Old Testament, physical human attributes to God, human emotions to God. We need to understand this as anthropomorphic language, but specifically as figurative language. I want to read a quote uh, that comes from the chapter from page 202 of Mark Jones's book. And it gets rather detailed, but I, I like this simple statement. It said, Reformed theologians speak of God having divine virtues or affections, affections such as wrath or hatred, are either acts of God's outward will or they are applied to God only figuratively and not properly. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you remember from the lesson I had on God is anger, we talked about that anger wasn't a part of the essence of who God is. Rather, it was this outward expression of his... Does anyone remember? It was an outward expression of God's what? Pastor answer. Justice. Justice. Right, God is perfectly just. So that perfect just, that constant just in the presence of sin gets outwardly expressed as anger, as punishment. Right? So the first answer to the why this language is helpful is this language is used, this language is helpful because it helps us understand God and, and relate to Him in ways that we 
wouldn't otherwise be able to because our minds are so limited, right? We're limited by what we experience, by what our senses see and touch and hear. The second reason is understanding and having a, having a good knowledge of the concept of anthropomorphic language or accommodating language helps us to understand and protect denying the other attributes of God. We're going to give, look at two examples. One's going to be in Joshua chapter 7, and the other one in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 15, if you want to go ahead and kind of have a finger or thumb or bookmark there. But what I mean by that is, is understanding anthropomorphic language helps us to reconcile and harmonize all of the attributes of God that we see in Scripture. We don't just read about God relenting or God turning back from something and say, oh, see, see, God changes. No, we take all of Scripture into an account. And we see that our God does not change. And so understanding those verses that speak of God regretting or relenting as figurative, as given to help teach us a truth about God, helps us to reconcile those types of verses. First, one common um, attribute or one common <coughs> human emotion that we see God expressing is his anger. And let me remember how I did my bookmarks. Joshua chapter 7, if we had time, we could read the whole chapter. But um, we have Joshua leading the people, and the Lord has been displeased with the people, and come to find out it's because someone there's got to be sin somewhere in the town. So Joshua chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 19, and I'm going to skip around a little bit. <coughs> now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And again answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. Achan experiences temptation amidst carrying out a command of God, and he admits to giving in to the temptation of coveting and stealing, something that he was not intended to have. And the people not only pull Achan out into the middle of the rest of the community, but they pull his sons out, his daughters out, his livestock out, and they stone them. After they stone them, they burn the bodies. After they burn the bodies, they pile stones on top of the bodies. Look at verse 26. The same chapter. So between where I left off and verse 26, you'll have the account of the destruction of Achan and his household. But verse 26 says, Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Accor to this day. Did Achan change God's mood? It would seem so from the language, and there's a, there's a truth to be grasped from that, and that truth is this. God's fatherly displeasure, God's anger is against all sin and unrighteousness. But that did not change who God is in his essence, right? What we saw was we know that God is just. He is constantly and eternally and always just. And when sin shows itself, in this case, 
we get to see it pretty closely put together. We see God with his people. We see sin enter the picture because of mutable man. And we see an expression of God's justice. Sometimes we don't see it that quickly, right? Sometimes we know that there are sins that won't be punished until the last day. Let's look at another example of regret. 1 Samuel chapter 15. So what we're doing is we're giving examples of where figurative, where there's language in Scripture that might seem to cause us to think that God changes. We won't go over all the verses that we covered with God is immutable and God is impassable. Uh, we just don't have the time. But we did go over Scripture passages that showcase that God doesn't have passions like men and our God is a God who does not change. But look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent. That strength of Israel is a name for God there. I'll read that again. And also the strength of Israel will not lie or relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. And if you'll come down just a handful of verses below that to verse 35. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The question is, do we have a contradiction? It would seem... About God regretting? Right. He first said he doesn't relent. He never regrets what he does, right? He never turns back from his purposes. All his purposes are perfect. Why would he need to do that? He's not like man. But then it says that he regretted... <coughs> making Saul king over Israel. How do we reconcile this as Christians? We reconcile it because God is trying to get a concept across to us as humans through figurative language. And that concept is this. When we sin, it is displeasing to God. It causes... God is angry at our sin. We can hold on to that reality. We can acknowledge that reality when we sin, when we're faced with our sin, whether that's through preaching or reading a devotional or our private, private reading of Scripture. We can acknowledge that truth. But we also need to harmonize that understanding with the rest of Scripture, with the rest of what we know about God, that He doesn't change. That when we see God angry, it's an expression of His justice that's always constant. So another way of putting this is when God communicates in figurative anthropomorphic language, it may at first, at our first reading, seem like God is reacting in a human sense. But in reality, God's eternal decree, His providence, it accounts for all the ways in which we ourselves can change as human beings. Right? We are the ones who are mutable. What, was, what really changed in the account with Achan? You have God with His people. And God is constant, he is unchanging. And then you have the people, you have one of their members commit sin, right? He stole. So who changed in that? You have the people who were obedient, and then they changed to being, or to become disobedient. But what we see from God is a constant expression of his justice. But from our standpoint, because we have anthropomorphic language, God teaches us that he is, his justice demands anger and wrath against all unrighteousness. 
So God's decrees and his providence account for our mutability. And the example of anger and grief and jealousy are used to demonstrate that God's essence is constant and unchanging. So these examples that we went over, both of them actually, they are examples that prove that God is consistent even when we change. Many of us can probably think back to last week and something in our lives changed. If we had a God that changed and reacted to every time that we changed, we would have chaos. How could God be perfectly blessed like we discussed in one of the lessons, always perpetually delighted in himself? if he somehow was this reactive being to where he was happy one second, mad the next second, jealous the next second, back to content. You see the chaos. He would be a human being. <laughs> he, would, he would be a God who's no more God than a human being. Number three. So the first example, we, we need to understand anthropomorphic language in Scripture because it helps us understand how we can comprehend God. Well, because he speaks to us on human terms. Number two, we need to understand the language so that when we read certain passages of Scripture where God gives himself physical characteristics of eyeballs and fingers and toes, but we also confess that God has no body, or when we read about these emotions that God has, but we also confess that he doesn't have passions like men, so that we can make sure that we have a good understanding of who God is that's not based off one verse in Scripture. It's based off our understanding of how all Scripture harmonizes. So number three, and I kind of already spoiled it, and even though I didn't intend to. Number three, I just wanted to say a better way, maybe a, a nicer word that can come up in our discussions at work, or uh, at home, or in small group studies, or in our everyday conversations is a word to accommodate. Because that's really what this language does for us. It accommodates our finiteness. It accommodates our lack of ability to really wrap our minds around who God is. That's actually not in the book. I've got a quote to read with regards to this because there is a certain side of this to where once you un start understanding that really all of Scripture is, is broadly speaking, anthropomorphic. It's given to us in a way we can wrap our minds around. It's given to us in human terms. Imagine everyone in here only knowing one language, and maybe that is true, but me coming in here and only speaking Chinese, and I was trying to speak and communicate to you things true about myself, but you would never understand it. You would never be able to comprehend what I was saying. God communicates to us in a way that we can understand. He didn't leave us to be confused about who he is. He gave us his word. We can read it, and we can have confidence that when we read it, we're learning about who God is. Herman Bavink, I think, says it better than me. He says, while our knowledge of him is accommodated and limited, it is no less real, true, and trustworthy. As God reveals himself, so he truly is. His revealed attributes truly reveal his nature. Hopefully that's kind of maybe gets you thinking about the word a little bit more. Um, but I want to get us to a, an even better example of the reality of how God communicates to us in human form. So you can see, hopefully, that when we discuss anthropomorphic language, and a lot of it is figurative. But there's a reality to all anthropomorphic language in Scripture. And what is that human, physical, divine reality? We start to read about it in Matthew. It's Christ, right? Jesus is God incarnate, right? Jesus, 
we see it finally coming to a reality when the gospel starts, when the New Testament starts. So if we, if in Christ, right, we as um, Reformed Presbyterians, we confess that he is the God-man, that he, then he is the most beautiful and clear picture of God communicating in anthropomorphic language, communicating to us in a way that we can see, right? He literally came, right? God the Son literally had feet, he had hair, he had nails, he had eyes, he had boogers, he had sweat, he had tears. He had those physical attributes. Think about the emotions we read about in the New Testament that were literal emotions that God the Son had. He wept, he had hunger, he had thirst, he grew tired, he labored, he changed. When Jesus was born, was he a 30-year-old man ready to die on the cross? No, he was an infant in the womb. He came as a child. He learned things. He was under the discipline of his parents, yet without sin. So what's the point that we're trying to make? Well, here is the reason why this is so important. When we see Jesus on the scene, when we see God incarnate on the scene, it reflects back onto the, all the Old Testament language that we've already done a very brief survey of. Why is God trying to give himself these human characteristics in this figurative way? Why does he say he has eyes? Why does he say he has hands? Why does he say he has feet, a mouth, a tongue, and all these human emotions? It was all for the purpose of pointing to Christ. He used this figurative language in the Old Testament to nourish his people to remind his people that he was coming, that he was going to come in the flesh and finally accomplish in space and time their salvation. So all the figurative language is pointing towards the reality that we read about most clearly in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Sometimes within Christian circles there's a discussion of who was really mediating for the Old Testament saints, of who was really nourishing them. For heaven's sakes, they have so many laws, surely it was just the law that was sustaining them. Well, that's not really what we confess, and that's not what the Scriptures teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll start in verse 1. So hopefully now, this accommodation that we start reading about in the Old Testament, this anthropomorphic language, we start to see one of the main purposes behind it all. It was to point to Christ. It was to point to the reality that there was going to be a time where we could say that God had feet and hands and hair and eyes. No longer figurative, but it was a reality that people saw. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they, that's the Old Testament saints, for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. The language that the Lord used in the Old Testament to give himself human characteristics 
was so that the people would not lose sight of the same person that we look to for our salvation, for our nourishment, for our sustainment physically and spiritually. And that was Christ. The same rock. This is what the scriptures tell us. From page 206 of the book is a quote from John Owen. It says this, According to John Owen, in the dwelling with the church, in dwelling with the church, the Son constantly assumes unto himself human affections to intimate that a season would come when he would immediately act in that nature. And indeed, after the fall, so we're going back to Genesis 3, after the fall, there is nothing spoken of God in the Old Testament, nothing of his institutions, nothing of the way and manner of dealing with the church, but what has respect unto the future incarnation of Christ. Think about how many times, especially when you read through the book of Psalms, you might not see the word Jesus in the book of Psalms. But if we are to understand why God used that anthropomorphic language, the Psalms are full of it, right? Ascribing to God hands and feet and eyes. Well, what we are supposed to understand when we read that, when we sing that, when we pray that, is that this was for the promised one who was going to come and actually have hands and actually have feet and actually have hair. So we see the uniqueness of God the Son. We said that God the Father has no passions like humans. We said that God the Father does not change. But then we have the miracle of the incarnation in which we have the divine with the human nature, 100% of each, and that's the mystery, right? It doesn't really add up for us human beings. But the uniqueness of Christ is this. We affirm and we confess that in Christ, he still had divine immutability. In his divine nature, he was unchangeable. But we also must confess that in his human nature, and we already gave examples of this, he had human passions, he had emotions, he changed. We talked about those physical changes he underwent, even from simply as growing into adulthood. But he knew no sin. And there was a purpose for that. Um... We'll get to that, uh, I think, in the application. So hopefully now we see that anthropomorphic language is used so that God can communicate and relate to us in terms that we can understand. This helps us to protect the other attributes of God that we discuss, His unchangeableness. He doesn't have passions like we do. His blessedness, how He can always say that God, there's never a time when God is not perfectly delighted in Himself and what He has done and what He has made. And then we've also seen how the most clear and beautiful picture of how God literally communicates to us in a physical form is through Jesus. Jesus fulfills and satisfies all that figurative language that we read about in the Old Testament. So what are some applications that we can draw from that? Number one, how can we practically think about this as human beings who don't currently in our culture use the word anthropomorphic a lot? Well, for us as regular churchgoers, we can think about it when we see the sacraments performed. What is the element that we use whenever we baptize an adult convert or a child? Water. It's something very simple for us to understand. And it's something that is also figurative, right? When Adam put water on top of Harper's head and Hazel's head, we aren't thinking that that water is literally washing our sin away in that moment. But that sign 
that human sign that we can grasp points to a spiritual reality, points to something beyond it. When we take the Lord's Supper, what are our two elements, bread and wine? It's something that God has given us to communicate to us in a way that we can understand. Through the bread and through the wine, we have represented the body and blood of Christ and what He's done for us. And really what draws us all together is the fact of, why does God do this? Surely we don't deserve Him <laughs> to commute. He doesn't owe us easy language to grasp. He doesn't owe us some, some sense. We don't have some sense of we are owed this accommodation, but He does it. He freely accommodates Himself. He freely relates Himself to us in ways that we can grasp. It's not like the only way to perform a baptism is at the top of Mount Everest, right? We do it with the preaching of the Word. We have a sign that's a simple sign in both the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we can grasp these very complex spiritual realities of being cleansed by the blood of Christ, of being spiritually nourished in His flesh and His blood through things that are actually very simple to understand. Bread, wine, and in the case of baptism, water. The second application is really just an encouragement of what we should meditate on, I think, this morning as we enter into a formal time of worship. Uh, you know, it's the temptation is to always immediately want to classes over, uh, to get into all these discussions that kind of detract from what we're actually about to do in the worship service. We have encouragement from our confession and our book of church order to, to from the time we, we arise really in the morning to try to get our minds and our conversations molded around our worship service. And so think about this this morning as we enter that. Meditate on this, that God freely chose to speak to us and interact with us and communicate to us in a way that we could understand Him. He's not some cold being that just wanted to make and just watch us walk around and, and go crazy. He wanted to relate Himself to us in a way that we could comprehend. And He does that in nature, as we talked about. He does that through the Scriptures. So these are all ways that we can learn about God and who He is. And He does that most, most clearly, most beautifully, through Jesus Christ the most clear picture of an anthropomorphic example, God communicating himself to us with human characteristics. And the truth that we all need to understand is God didn't do all these things. God didn't use this language simply to be able to, to, to communicate with us. He didn't do it simply as an end game to just to be able to relate himself to us. But for those who are in Christ, he did it for our redemption. Without anthropomorphic language, how could we be redeemed in Christ? The scriptures tell us in Hebrews that one of the things that makes Christ's priesthood superior, one of the things that makes Christ's priesthood so important for us to understand is that we have a high priest who is able to relate because he experienced all the temptations of human emotions. He experienced all the pain and turmoil of this world. And he can relate to us. He can have sympathy with us. Yet he knew no sin. So why do we discuss anthropomorphic language? Because that is how God communicated to us, not only to tell us about who he is, but that is also he, how he decided to communicate to us through Jesus Christ for our redemption. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we confess that we aren't worthy of being communicated to. You are Ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Lord. 
And we are so often prone to wander into sin. We are so prone to wander in our minds away from the things that you require of us. And in our actions, our hearts, Lord, can get selfish and prideful in the blink of an eye. Our emotions are like a seesaw that with the change in wind, Lord, we can go from one end of the spectrum to the other. And yet, Lord, we confess and we praise you because you do not change. Your promises are sure. You are God, and we trust, Lord, that you do not change. We are thankful, Lord, that you don't have passions and emotions the way that we do. We praise you, Lord, because you've decided to communicate to us freely in a way that we can grasp and understand. Make your word so much sweeter to us, Lord, than it is today. Help us to love it more. Give us a a taste of it this morning, Lord, through the preaching of your word. Help us to be mindful that you, an infinite, incomprehensible being, chose to communicate to us in ways that we can understand. You accommodated us, though we did not deserve it. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray.